Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 13th, 2016. Coming up, an interview with Howard Jacobs, Executive Vice President for Genomic Medicine at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. As you listen to this broadcast, your brain is processing my words separately from my intonation. Together, this verbal input gives you a unified message. But when you talk to your dog or cat, do they use the same information? Recently, researchers in Budapest, Hungary, used brain scanning techniques to answer this question. They trained dogs to lie quietly in MRI machines. To me, that was possibly the most remarkable finding of this work. And they talked to them using reward phrases that dogs had previously learned, as well as other phrases that dogs had not been exposed to. And by the way, we'll post a very cool video of this on the How on Earth website. In dogs, the left brain hemisphere responds more strongly to words, and a right brain region distinguishes intonation. These are the same regions you and I use to process the same information. Reward regions only light up if both the words and the intonation are consistent with praise. It seems that dogs have become hardwired to respond to praise. Now, if only cats would do the same thing. Although employers may not appreciate older adults, if you're an elderly crane, your pals will appreciate you. Researchers from universities in Germany and Maryland, as well as the USGS and the International Crane Foundation, investigated a behavior known as short-stopping, which is the shortening of a migration route by shifting wintering grounds toward the breeding grounds, shortening their route. Short-stopping benefits migrating birds by decreasing the amount of energy they have to use. And since they arrive at the breeding grounds earlier, they have more time to nest and mate. The researchers found that for each additional year of age of the oldest bird in the group, the distance between breeding and wintering grounds was reduced by almost 25 miles, or 40 kilometers. The study was published last week in the journal Nature Communications. Next up, spoiler alert. You may be hearing Donald Trump's next jab at President Obama right here on How on Earth. A new species of parasitic flatworm that infects turtles in Malaysia was reported in the current issue of the Journal of Parasitology. The species is so unusual and distinctive that a new genus was created to include this new species. That's the first time such an event in this group of parasites has occurred in 21 years. The researchers named their discovery in honor of President Barack Obama. The parasite is called Baractremia obamaei. Because these turtle parasites are ancestral to the flatworms that cause the debilitating disease schistosomiasis, Studying them could broaden our understanding of the origins and evolution of the human disease and help identify new approaches for understanding how the disease harms afflicted individuals. 
Although many people understandably view parasites negatively, the scientists who discovered and collected the new species emphasized that those who study the organisms see them as beautiful and resilient with amazingly complex life cycles. So when the pundits poke fun at the namesake of this new genus, keep that in mind. And finally, this Friday, September 16th at 7 p.m., Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus will present a live talk titled Forgotten Foundations, The Lost Legacy of Women in Physics and Astronomy. Throughout the ages, women's have, women have made fundamental discoveries in both physics and astronomy and been instrumental in communicating science to the broader public and inspiring future scientists. This talk will trace the forgotten history and struggles of the women who brought us some of the fundamental laws of physics, got us to the moon, and much more. The speaker, Bailey Bordwell, is a graduate student at CU in the Department of Astrophysics and Planetary Science. That's this Friday at 7 p.m. at Fisk Planetarium. For more information, visit their website at Fisk, that's F-I-S-K-E, dot Colorado dot E-D-U. Howard Jacobs is the Executive Vice President for Genomic Medicine at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. I recently spoke with Jacobs about the present and future of personalized genomic sequencing and analysis for the identification of rare, undiagnosed, and misdiagnosed genetic diseases. Here's that interview. This is Beth Bennett, and you are listening to How on Earth, this science show on KGNU, and we are speaking with Dr. Howard Jacobs today. Dr. Jacobs is the Executive Vice President for Genomic Medicine. Is that correct, Howard? That's correct, Beth. Okay, so maybe we can start off by talking about genomics. What exactly is genomics? Well, genomics is, is really kind of a, a moniker, if you will, for um, all of an individual's DNA. So when we think about DNA, we tend to think of it as, you know, um, what makes up our blueprint and so forth. So when we talk about genomics, it's all of your DNA, which has two major components. It's, it's really what you get from each of your parents, and we think about that as chromosomes and genes and that type of stuff. And then there's another little bit that we get in the mitochondria, uh, that we only get from our moms. It also has a little bit of DNA in there as well. So that all together, all that DNA is what makes up your genomics. And this is pretty cool that it's starting to be explored for medical purposes. And that's a lot of what you are doing at Hudson Alpha. Is that correct? That's correct. So one of our main uh, foci here at uh, Hudson Alpha is looking at genomic medicine and being able to read people's DNA, and I mean all of their DNA, and then be able to use that to help physicians uh, make better diagnoses. And if you really think about it, I guess the, the simplest way to think about it is, is that your DNA is your blueprint. So imagine if we could give our physicians a blueprint, how much easier would it be to treat us if they actually had a blueprint? Well, that's true, but sometimes blueprints can be huge. So how do you focus in? Like, for instance, if I had a specific genetic disease, but we didn't know what it was, but I had my genetic blueprint, I had my genomics um, run by Hudson Alpha, how, how would I deal with that? 
Well, that's a great question, Beth. So, so if we were to read your DNA, uh, we would compare it against a reference, and this is something that the Human Genome Project put together about 12 years ago. Um, everybody's uh, genome is about uh, 3 billion bases long, so that's all of your DNA kind of glued end to end, the bases being the chemical subunits. And so you would differ between 4 to 6 million data points out of the 3 billion that we'd compare you against. So right away, we've really done a big filtration. So we'd be able to say, okay, so, you know, God forbid, but, you know, Beth has a disease we're trying to figure out. Well, we can get rid of all but 4 to 6 million. So that's still a lot to look at. But I think you'd agree going from 3 billion to 4 yeah. to 6 million is, is a big deal. And then what we do is we use a lot of biology and knowledge about how genes work. And Genes, like anything else that you'd have on a blueprint, have certain rules about how they work. So, for example, if, with a jet engine, you know the different parts of a jet engine, and so you'd now look to see, uh, is there something broken in that piece? And so, by reading the DNA, we, by and large, can do the same thing. Is this gene broken? So, there's actually rules that code for how does a gene work, and when we read that, we'll say, oh my gosh, this gene is broken. So, there's a much smaller number of genes that are broken or aren't reading correctly, and that helps us hone in on it. So that's number one. Number two, since it's a rare disease, all the genomes that have been sequenced around the world, um, or at least the vast majority of them, I should say, are in the public domain. Um, so you can now say, hey, has anybody else seen this broken gene? And if the answer is no, then that gives you another probability that that gene is actually playing a role. So that's number two. And then number three, there's ways to go in and test that specific gene, whether in the patient cells or in animal models, that you can actually validate it. Okay. And is the reason that you are focusing on the rare diseases is because those are typically caused by single genes? Or I do know that from looking at your website, that you have a collaboration going with NIH in their rare disease uh, group. Yeah, so it's, it's a little, it it's really comes down to a, a couple of uh, decisions. So first of all, rare disease is, as you said, it's thought to be one single gene. And so it makes the search space a lot easier. So for genes like high blood pressure, where there could be hundreds of genes that play a role, it's just much harder to figure out how all those pieces come together. Eventually, we'll be able to do that. So it's easier to have one gene that you're looking for. And then there's a huge, huge unmet need um, for people that have misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, rare disease, or, or really often, you know, I like to think of it more as being an undefined disease. The, the physician sees some of the characteristics clinically that look like a specific disease, but it doesn't meet all the criteria. So is that unusual presentation, or is that a different disease? So it's a little bit, <coughs> excuse me, awkward to think about this in 2016, that there's between 20 and 30 million Americans that we don't know what's wrong with them clinically. And so it's just a huge space that needs help to help patients and families. And I would guess that a lot of those diseases have overlapping symptoms because a lot of those single gene defects could be in the same pathway that might result in the same set of symptoms. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult for the physicians without that blueprint, right? So let's say you have, as you just mentioned, part of a pathway. Well, let's say there's 
20 genes in that pathway. But each gene is going to manifest itself a little bit differently, right? So it's part of the same disease, but it wouldn't have all the same manifestations because it's a different gene. So, so how do you sort that out in absence of even knowing what the pathway is? Yeah, of course. So now, is this um, focus on rare disease and personalized genomics, is that part of the for-profit or non-profit, or there's an overlap in there? Yeah, so, so Hudson Alpha is a not-for-profit, um, and everything we're doing on the clinical side is not-for-profit. Um, we have four major missions here. We have research, um, we have education, uh, we have genomic medicine for which we do clinical laboratory work and we have our own clinic. Um, and then we have economic development. And so even in, under the economic development side, uh, we're really uh, an institution that uh, harbors lots of startup companies, uh, most of which we don't have any connection with other than to provide space. Oh, I see. Okay. And I love it that you do education and that you go out to schools and bring students in. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I have to tell you that, you know, I knew about their sequencing technology here, and they're one of the best in the business. Sean Levy runs our sequencing program. I knew about this, but what I didn't know was how strong the educational program here under uh, Dr. Neil Lamb. It's really uh, an extraordinary program. I think that it has to be a two-way street, like you're suggesting, with education, and that's part of why we're talking today, because I think this is a really important thing to get out to the general public, that people understand how important genomics are in their own lives. Yeah, I agree with you about that. In fact, you know, one of the things we struggle with every day is, you know, we're really trying to push the envelope of how do we get this information out both to the patient uh, and to the physician, but... You know, I, I think if, if we stop for a moment and think about our DNA and think about disease, you know, in general, we go to the doctor when we're not feeling well, right? Everybody talks about, well, we need to have better health care. Well, first of all, we'd like to go to the doctor when we're not sick. So wouldn't that be great if we could figure out how to do that? Well, then that means we've got to figure out how to read the DNA and educate people around it. And that education is really important. So, for example, I have my genome has been sequenced. But I have two kids, and I have a sister, and I have parents uh, who are both still living. So, so your DNA is obvious of advantage to you, um, but it's also of advantage to your family to know that information. But that assumes they want to know the same information that you want to know. And so I think this is where um, we have these mixed-up words. Uh, we talk about precision medicine. To me, that's what we want to help the physicians with. So we want to educate the physicians and the care teams around how do you use genomic information. But for the patient, and even more so for the family, it becomes personalized medicine. Because what information do you want to know as an individual, and what information does your family want to know? Because if I'm carrying something, then that means my children have a 50% chance. So it really comes down to the point that education is really critical. Absolutely. Well, let's take just a minute for a short station identification. If you're listening now, we are speaking with Dr. Howard Jacobs, the Executive Vice President for Genomic Medicine at Hudson Alpha, discussing personalized medicine through genomic sequencing. So one thing that I wanted to pursue a little bit with you today, Howard, is 
more common diseases, what are typically known as quantitative or complex diseases. Because like you said earlier, those are the most common diseases. The single gene diseases are rare. And I know that you have a background in studying these quantitative diseases. And how do you think we're going to deal with that using genomic sequencing in the future, hopefully the near future? Well, Beth, as you know, uh, these common diseases are really, really a challenge because each of the gene effects uh, is rather small. And so the first thing we have to do is is build the catalog of, of what does a gene do. And if this particular variation in the gene causes a, causes a change in the clinical phenotype, what does that mean? And as we build that uh, toolkit or parts list, I think is a better way of looking at it and understanding how each of the parts come together, then we'll really be able to move off into um, to the more common diseases. Now, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are aware of this, but there, there, as you know, Beth, there's been many studies over the last uh, decade and a half in looking at large numbers of people for common disease using DNA markers. And so there are hundreds of genes out there that now have um, a stake in the ground, if you will, that says, hey, this gene could play a role. I think what's going to happen over the next decade is as we sequence more and more people and we get to, you know, millions of people, we now have the statistical power to say, oh, what combinations of genes um, causes the disease? So I think we're in the worst time in an inflection point that happens with technology. Um, we need a lot more people to be sequenced, so we have the power to do what everybody wants to have done, common disease. But until we have millions of people, we don't have the power. And so it's a little bit of that chicken versus the egg of, of when are we going to have that? Because at some point in time, you and I, I'll speak for you about, but I think you agree, <laughs> will ultimately um, change medicine by having those common diseases. Absolutely. And is Hudson Alpha collecting that data and pooling it with other groups? Because I know a lot of other groups are doing that. So we have a range of projects that we're working on that are NIH funded. So the rare disease, the undiagnosed disease network, uh, we're part of. We're also part of the CSER, which is the Clinical Sequencing Exploratory Research Project, which are both NIH. But we've also just launched a project called the Insight Genome, which is really looking at how do you use information for people that um, are presumably healthy or have a family history for something? How do you use that DNA information together with their physicians to try to look at risk? And so that's one of the projects that we're looking at to expand. And I do see this coming with sharing between multiple groups uh, as more and more people develop this data. Right. And in the future... Do you expect that a lot of a lot more people will be coming to you to have their genome sequenced? Like, what are the numbers right now? So we're in the in the hundreds uh, that we've been working on since uh, since we came to Hudson Alpha. I would say that um, before we left the Medical College of Wisconsin and came down here, I'd say we're probably in the low thousands that we've done collectively. Um, and so it's still a relatively small number, um, but it's, you know, as the technology gets better and the prices come down and there's more value, um, I think we're going to see that. As I was saying earlier, I think we're, we haven't got quite to that point where everybody needs a smartphone. We yeah. haven't quite got to that point yet where everybody needs their genome. 
Right. But one of the great things that you guys do at Hudson Alpha that I was impressed with um, is it's like one-stop shopping. I spoke with Carl Zimmer a few weeks ago. He had his genome sequence, but he had to traipse all over the country to get it analyzed and read and, you know, boiled down to what genes were actually going to do him some harm at some point. But you guys, you do it all under one roof. Correct. And that's one of the reasons that we do what we do. So we actually started the clinic a year ago, um, and the major reason for starting the clinic is that we want to be able to practice medicine with what we do. Um, and we, we believe that, that having physicians that we're working with, patients that are part of, uh, part of what we're trying to work uh, for and bring together families and all this, you really need to have an, a, a great team. So you've got to have your bioinformatics people. You've got to have your physicians. You've got to have your ethicists. So we have 17 faculty here. And out of the 17 faculty, two are ethicists. So I'm going to say that's probably one of the highest density of ethicists in the country um, for this small number. So all these pieces really have to come together, as you said. And we really think that a one-stop shop will enable us to learn better, smarter, faster, which then benefits the patients. Oh, definitely. And I guess I should ask, what are the ethicists doing? Well, the ethicists really focus on a couple of things. So, um, so data return is such a big deal. So what types of information should a parent be allowed to ask for their children? You know, what type of information should I be allowed to ask for myself? Um, and one of the projects we're working on is for people that have been adopted. And you think of that up front, you say, hey, that's great. You know, someone that's adopted, they don't have a family history. So we now give them the ability to get a family history. Well, that's fantastic. But what's the ethics around that? And you say, well, Howard, that's kind of a dumb question. What ethics would that be? And I'm going to say, well, right now for insurance, they don't have the same types of medical records that people go through. So if we now read their genome, it changes potentially what their insurability would be, particularly around life insurance. And what does that mean for their children, right? And so this is where you spend your time with your ethicists, and they really work to figure out how to do this. So we have a couple of companies that want to do um, have sequencing for their employees, to, for you know the ones that have these rare diseases. Okay. So in your workplace, you actually uh, worry about, well, are they going to fire me if they find out about this? Um, so what are people worried about? And then how do you study that? So what we can do is make sure the policies and procedures and so forth are in place because you don't want people to feel like, you know, a benefit you're trying to give them turns out to be something that's quite negative. So this is the type of work that the ethicists uh, spend time with, and then they really spend time working with the community. So we just had a meeting this last week with uh, some community members about, well, how do we get this out to all socioeconomic groups? How do we get this out to the different ethnic groups? Um, different religions have different views on how to use this information. And that's really all ethics that has to come together. And again, the, the Genome Project has been looking at social, uh, ethical, social, and legal implications from the very beginning, and we just have embedded that into our program here. Absolutely. Well, that is a fascinating story, and we are unfortunately out of time, so I'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for talking today, Howard. Uh, thank you for your time, and uh, thank you for sharing uh, our information with your listeners. You are so welcome.
That was Dr. Howard Jacobs of the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology discussing the application of genomic sequencing to medical diagnostics. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and was engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, with additional music from Jarek Bischoff. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to see that nifty video of dogs in MRI machines, it'll be on the website. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.